Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The King is Coming. This series looks at seven titles of the coming Messiah found in the book of Isaiah. These titles were all part of a special series of songs that Christians in earlier times sang the week before Christmas, culminating on Christmas Eve with the singing of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We hope this helps you focus on the glory of Jesus, our coming King. Um, today we're going to be continuing our series on The King is Coming, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And uh, as always, the verses are there in your booklet, and they'll also be up here on the screen. You can follow along in your Bible. I'll be using the uh, New International Version. Isaiah chapter 9, the first two verses. Hear now the words of the Sovereign Lord, your Creator, your Redeemer, your King. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. One of the things that we don't think about much today is how much of a problem darkness can be. We're so used to being able just to flip on a switch and lights come on and it works, but it can be a real issue. I've actually been enjoying, and I'll give a little plug here, uh, many of you may not know, but Marty Herzog has written a set of memoirs here recently, just kind of telling stories of when he was uh, a young man. That was a long time ago, wasn't it, Marty? That was... <laughs> And believe it or not, when Marty was a young man, the Navy had jets, and uh, he actually trained and flew A-7s and uh, flew combat missions in Vietnam. But in the book, he's telling the story of what it was like to become a pilot and to learn. And one of the things you learn quickly is it's one thing to fly in the daytime, it's another thing to fly at night. And I won't, I won't spoil the stories, but there are one or two stories for Marty, both when he's first trying to land on a carrier at night. If you can imagine, first off, just trying to land a plane on a carrier, and then when everybody turns the lights out, it really becomes complex. And then in another particular scene, Marty even lost all of his gauges, and it went completely dark. And at that point, you can't see anything. When you read those kind of stories, you remember light is a good thing. Darkness is difficult for us, but we, we kind of forget that. And so we can read these stories and not feel the weight of what the Scripture is saying when a people live in darkness. So today we're going to talk about the coming King and how He is the dawning light to dispel the darkness. Now note at the beginning here, there is this great problem of darkness, and Isaiah tells us that the people are both walking in the darkness and they are living in the land of the shadow of death. Now remember, whenever we do Hebrew, they, they liked what was referred to as parallelism, especially in their poetry. And notice here, we've got that where the same idea is repeated twice. 
the people are walking in the darkness and they are living in the land of the shadow of death. It's two ways of saying kind of the same thing, but the second one adds a little bit more to it. The darkness is not just darkness, it is actually the shadow of death. And so again, we can forget this, but for them, the idea that they live, that they walk, that they dwelled in utter darkness is a, is a terrifying thought, but that's exactly what Isaiah is speaking to this people. Now, the original thing that Isaiah was dealing with was Assyria was sweeping through that part of the world. And he had prophesied that this was going to happen to the northern tribes, and it in fact had. And then it was going to come and they were going to threaten Judah. And so the darkness he's talking about initially is the darkness of an invading army. It's not literal darkness. The people still have the sun shining. But there was a true darkness coming via this invasion. But there are many facets that the Scripture reveals uh, relative to darkness. Throughout the Bible, it speaks of darkness many different ways. And I want to look at just a number of these today. Actually, we're going we're to run real briefly through six of them and look at what it does. And many of these are tied right into this text. Now, the first one is the darkness of emotional gloom and distress. Notice in verses 1 and 2 in our text, he refers to gloom distress, and then darkness and a shadow. And these people are living in gloom and distress. And again, the reason for that is they're facing an invasion. There are a few things that are scarier than when you realize your nation is about to be invaded and your prospects of winning are slim to none. And you're going to be at the mercy of those who are sweeping in. And so Isaiah is speaking and saying there is going to be an emotional gloom. There is going to be an emotional distress that is going to come upon you. And when that happens, the world seems dark and there's no hope for the future. Now, you and I may not have lived in a time where we felt like our nation was about to be invaded and conquered, but most of us can relate to the idea of gloom and emotional distress. Most of us have been through something at one time or another where our hopes for the future seem to be dashed. And, and you worry whether everything is kind of coming apart. Uh, if you have not yet, and you are a parent, it's called the teenage years. And, and during that time, th th there can be this, you feel like the, the wheels are coming off the track and you wonder what's going to happen not to cause gloom and distress for those who haven't yet hit those years. But, and, and actually, it's the same as teenagers, is it not? I mean, you spend a lot of time as a teenager up and down and worried about the future and what it's going to be. And so the Scripture likens that to darkness. And if you've been through that experience, you understand exactly what it's like. It feels dark. A second thing that the Scripture says is a facet of darkness is the darkness of blindness, whether physical or spiritual. In Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah is continuing all these prophecies about the coming king. And in chapter 42, he says this, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind. So notice here, he's speaking, and, and you can see why. There is light, and then he's referring to blindness. Now, obviously, 
physical blindness is actually a literal lack of light. It is a literal darkness. And for those who experience that, it's very difficult. When I was reading and meditating on this this week, I remembered back to high school. Some of you may have had the same experience I did. We had to uh, uh, memorize John Milton's When I Consider, uh, and it begins, When I Consider How My Light Is Spent, Ere Half My Days in This Dark World and Wide. Uh, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged within me useless. Milton had begun his life and spent much of his life with sight, and then they now think it's probably glaucoma. He had lost his sight. And in this poem, he's meditating and saying, how's my life going to continue? What's going to happen to me? Am I even going to be able to read and write anymore? Remember, there is no Braille at the time. And Milton's wondering what is going to happen in his life. God did use him, and in the poem, actually, he comes to hope at the end uh, as well. But there is actually physical blindness. But in the Scripture, blindness is used very often as a metaphor for spiritual blindness. For example, and, and we see this a lot in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus is pronouncing seven woes on the Pharisees. And twice, in verse 16 and 24, he says this, Woe to you, blind guides. And in verse 24, he says, You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Now, Jesus was not saying the Pharisees had literal physical blindness. He was saying you're proclaiming to be guides, but you yourselves can't even see. You proclaim that you can spiritually lead the people, but in fact you are spiritually blind. And he uses this metaphor. So you are people who somehow can strain out a gnat and miss the camel which is nonsensical, but this is what they were able to do. Uh, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, says this, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So notice Paul's metaphor is, those who do not see and understand the gospel, Paul says they are blind. And they are blind because Satan has blinded him, them. They are the, he is the God of this world, the God of this age, and he's blinded them so that they cannot even see the light of the gospel, which is the glory of God that is seen in Christ. And it's important we understand this isn't some kind of just spiritualizing. Okay, The Scripture takes both the physical and the spiritual very seriously. And we're going to keep seeing for every physical one there's a spiritual one that the, that the Scripture speaks to. But it is very, very important to see this isn't just kind of spiritualizing. It's saying that there is a reality here. And the fact is there is nothing darker than spiritual blindness. Hear me in this. In the resurrection, physical blindness will be healed. Spiritual blindness will continue for eternity. Those who are blind spiritually to the gospel will remain so even after the resurrection. It's a blindness that not even the resurrection will heal. Thanks be to God, those like John Milton and friends that you may know that that suffer from blindness, 
their blindness physically will be healed in the resurrection. Spiritual blindness is so dark that not even the resurrection will resolve it. Third kind of blindness, or darkness, excuse me, is that of confusion and error. Confusion and error. In Isaiah chapter 60, he's continuing this theme of the king who's going to come, and he's also dealing a lot with light. Matt, uh, Isaiah does this a lot in his prophecies. And in chapter 60, he says this, Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Now notice here he's using this metaphor, but again, Isaiah is not saying there's going to be literal clouds over the nations. He's not saying that the sun is literally going to stop shining. What he is saying is that there is such error and confusion among the nations. They are worshiping all of these gods who are not gods. They do not know the one true God. And he's saying, therefore, they live in deep darkness. But he is prophesying and saying that the light is going to come, and then God's people are going to be a light, and the nations are going to come in. Thanks be to God, I saw much evidence of this just last week where there is a vibrant church in a closed country, and they are planting churches like mad as people are turning to Jesus. Thanks be to God, the nations are coming. But darkness, there is, a, there is an error and a confusion that produces great darkness. And if you think about it, when you are in error, when you are confusion, when you think up is down and down is up and bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter, when you think that which is bondage is freedom and that which is actually freedom is bondage, friend, you are in trouble. You are in darkness and you stumble into a pit. Remember Jesus said, blind guides lead the blind and they both fall into a ditch. So there is an error and a confusion that the scripture says is like the densest darkness fourth thing is there is a darkness of captivity see this is remember what the people were thinking in isaiah 9 is when assyria comes in what do they do to you they take you away they, they carry you off into captivity is what they do so you won't even be around anymore and Isaiah continues to play with this throughout his prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6 and 7, which we just read a couple minutes ago, where I'll make you a light, a covenant for the people, and a light for the Gentiles. Notice in verse 7, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Now last week, Bobby mentioned this. When he, there was the, the title for Jesus that he's the key of David. The key that unlocks every prison door. And this text there, but see, notice how these texts all merge together. These ideas, these different titles for Jesus, because there's one Messiah. And so darkness is also related to those who are sitting in a dungeon. Notice again, there's kind of a parallelism. Captives from prison, released from a dungeon, those who sit in darkness. Because actually, when you sat in a dungeon very often, was it light-filled or was it dark? It was dark. Uh, we were talking at our Connect group this past week. I was remembering as we talked about the key of David a little bit. Um, when we were in Vienna, there's a, a famous bridge there called the Bridge of Sighs. 
And there was a poem that was written about this, and one of my favorite blues rock albums by a guy named Robin Trower was called The Bridge of Sighs, but I didn't know what The Bridge of Sighs was. And when you go to Venice, they show you it. It's a bridge that runs from the, the palace of the Doge, the leader of Venice, into the prison. And the tradition, what it said, whether it's really true or not, was that when you had somehow crossed the Doge and you were in trouble and you were sentenced to spend the rest of your life in the dungeon, you walked out and the last thing you saw on the light from the bridge was Venice in all of her glory. Venice was the richest kingdom in the world at this time. And you knew when you got to the other side of the bridge, you were never going to see light again. You were going to be put into a dungeon down below the ground and you would spend the rest of your days there. And so you can imagine if that were the case, one might sigh on that bridge. And so they called it the Bridge of Sighs. There is this captivity, this dungeon that is full of darkness. And so the New Testament uses captivity uh, and darkness in this way. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, Paul speaking about what a church leader must be like. He's speaking this to his young apprentice, Timothy. And he says, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Notice once again the scripture saying, yes, there is a physical captivity, but there's a worse captivity. And that is a captivity where you are held captive by Satan to do his will. That is the deepest dungeon one can experience. Spiritual captivity and dungeons of blindness and error uh, and sin is a deep darkness and it actually robs you of the freedom for which we were created in the image of God. When you are taken captive by Satan and that which you thought was going to be freedom, it becomes the strongest sort of bondage. There are all kinds of people around us today, right here in this country, that have all kinds of political freedom and economic freedom. They've got freedom of liberty and movement, and they are bound fast. Because Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. There is a deep captivity that comes from that. Another one is the darkness of fear. In the previous verse, in Isaiah 8.22, which is the verse before our text, Isaiah said this, Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now this is Isaiah speaking, and that's why he says, But... For you who live in Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and in Galilee, there's going to be light. He's contrasting it because he's saying this deep darkness and gloom is coming. And in fact, in, in Isaiah 8:14, Isaiah had said, Do not fear what they fear. Do not call conspiracy everything the people around you call conspiracy. But in your heart set apart Yahweh as Lord a verse that Peter picks up in 1 Peter chapter 3 and quotes to us. See, there is a problem with fear. The people were afraid. They were worried about things. In fact, and, and here's the problem actually, the king of Judah feared Assyria 
And rather than turning to Yahweh, he turned to other nations for help. And Isaiah said, you let your fear lead you rather than faith leading you. And all fear did was lead you into deeper bondage. Fear told you it was going to lead you out into the light. All it actually did was lead you into ever deeper darkness. Now, if you've experienced true fear, and it may be fear for your physical existence, but it can also be just fear again of the future. If you are worried and it seems like, you know what I'm talking about, the whole future looks dark. And it doesn't matter what other people tell you. It doesn't matter that, that they say things are going to be okay. If you are bound and ruled by fear, it dominates our hearts and our minds, and it makes the present and the future look gloomy and dark. I don't know the exact number. You know, there are guys who count these things and say there's 365 times, but how often did Jesus and God tell us, fear not? Fear not, you of little faith. Do not fear. Do not. We are told that over and over and over again. And one of the reasons for it, when God keeps repeating a command like that, he knows it's because he understands this is a temptation to which we are given. We are given to fear. And fear is the opposite of faith, and it is the opposite of understanding the love of God. John tells us perfect love drives out fear. When we understand how we are loved by God, we do not give way to fear. When we are walking in faith, it is the opposite of fear. Fear means I'm worried about what's going to happen in the future, and ultimately I'm not sure that God's really going to be able to control it for me. And that is a dark dungeon. And then the last one is the darkness of death. Notice in Isaiah 9, 2, again our text, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So darkness here is likened to living in the land of the shadow of death. Now, I'm going to kind of reverse the order here. There is a spiritual death. The New Testament tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it's for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, Paul's not saying literally every one of them had been physically dead. He's just saying that spiritually, you were dead. There is spiritual death. It has been our lot because of sin, because of the fall. Uh, it shrouds all of humanity. But we all also know, unless Jesus returns, who in this room is going to die? physically. Everybody. There is no escaping it. Now see, here's how this works in our culture. We, we do what pe people used to refer whistling by the graveyard. People were afraid what was going on in the graveyard, so if I just whistle loud enough and I can kind of scoop by and not be aware of what's next to me there. Friend, you, you can whistle by a graveyard all you want. One day, death's going to come knocking at the door. It is for every one of us. Fear of death is darkness. It, it is irrational, but our culture is given over to it. We like to use euphemisms. We like to say all kinds of things and act as if somehow I'm going to be the one person that's going to escape from this. 
Not going to happen. There, there are very bright people. I remember a few years ago when I was really studying technology a lot, you know, and Ray Kurzweil, who works for Google, and he's got all kinds of money, and he's using his money to take all these vitamins and to cycle his blood and to do all of this because he really, really believes he's going to be able to download himself onto a computer. You can't make this stuff up. Okay? Uh, proclaiming themselves to be wise... They've become fools. Friend, you, you can download yourself digitally all you want. When your body dies, you die. The New Testament says this. Hebrews chapter 2 writes and says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Notice, Jesus did not download himself digitally to save us because you're not a digital existence. You were born in a body. You live in a body. Your body is essential to who you are. There's even a saying that goes around that a lot of Christians say, you know, you are, you are not a body. You, ha, you, you are a spirit. You have a soul. You live in a body. That is not true. You are a body-spirit being. And you are both. And your hope in eternity is not that your spirit will live on, but that Jesus is going to snatch my body out of the dust. And I'm going to live eternally. Glorified, yes, but in real flesh and blood that can be touched. Anything else is a false hope. And there is deep darkness because of death. But for those who have seen the dawning light, we do not have to fear even death. Did you hear in some of the songs we were singing this morning? Even death will not have the last word. And friends, this is either true or it's not. I, I read a depressing article yesterday, a long article, about a church that this person was lauding that's down in, down in the South and all this stuff they're doing. And basically, their entire focus is on all of our problems now because they said all of this other stuff about the sweet by and by. Well, let me tell you something. Life is short. Eternity is long. You solve my problem for now and leave me a problem for eternity, you have not done me a favor. With friends like that, I don't need enemies. Okay? I need to know that for eternity, God has solved my problem. I need to know that death is conquered. And we forget this because we go around and we live. But friends, when you are dealing with either the death of a loved one or you are facing your own mortality, you know all that other stuff fades. And it's not really important. What matters is that is, is death then resolved or not? If it has not, then there really is no hope. If it has, then that's what I need to focus on. And that's what the, the coming of the light is about. Now, so notice all of these combine together to mean that there is a great darkness that envelops the world. Again, notice in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, gloom, distress, 
darkness, shadow of death. Isaiah is prophesying and look and saying, look, this is great, great darkness. And the world can look like a gloomy place, but you were not made for darkness, you were made for light. And God has promised the coming king is light to pierce the darkness. That is who he is. So let's talk for just a couple of minutes about Jesus, the dawning light, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. Notice here in Isaiah 9, 2, we're told the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. When you're in darkness, what you need is light. You don't, you don't need the key. You don't need the other things that we've seen. You need the light. And the Messiah had been referred to before this time as a light, and this was a, a consistent theme in the Old Testament. For example, in uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17, there's a prophecy being, had, uh, being spoken, and he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And he's going to crush and deal with the enemies of God's people. So notice, a star is rising up, and he's going to come and deliver God's people. And this is all the way back before Israel is even in the promised land. Now, in Isaiah's day, they're in the promised land, but they are being threatened with exile. And what's going to happen? Well, remember in Isaiah chapter 42, as Isaiah speaks to the exiles, he says that, look, I'm going to send one who's going to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Amazingly enough, and we'll look at this next week, this light is so great in overwhelming the darkness, he does not just conquer the darkness that is over Israel, he conquers the darkness that is over all the nations. Israel's in darkness because Assyria and Babylon had come in and brought darkness to Israel. God says the Messiah is going to be such a bright light, he's not only going to light Israel, he's going to pierce through and light the very nations that tried to put darkness on Israel. This is who the Messiah is. And so in the New Testament, we have where Jesus is referred to as the light of the world. He's the light, uh, the life that was the light of men. All of these metaphors for Christ as light in the New Testament. And it's because it goes all the way back to Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24 that a star was going to rise out of Jacob. But there's an interesting thing, and I want us to kind of meditate on this and, and the rest of our time, which is the day spring is a dawning light. Okay, the, the title for today originally, you know, was Oriens, from which we get Orient, like, you know, Japan, the land of the rising sun, everything in the east. But the day spring means dawning light. So notice in Isaiah 9-2, it says, on those who are in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Notice that that idea of dawning and the light growing. In Isaiah chapter 60, a text we looked at a couple of minutes ago, notice all the terms for the, the rising of the light. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, there is darkness over all the peoples, but the Lord is rising upon you. And verse 3, nations are going to come to the brightness of your dawn. Don't miss that it's talking about not just the light of full day, but actually the light that is 
rising. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, we sing this in one of our Christmas uh, carols, and sometimes people misunderstand what it means. Notice it says, For you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Malachi is using the metaphor of the sun rising, but he's saying this is what it's going to be like when Messiah comes. He's going to rise, and there is going to be healing coming around him. So these texts and others in the Old Testament give the idea not just of light, but of dawning light, of the first gleams of light breaking through into the darkness. And so the Messiah came to be seen as the dawning light, or sometimes what was referred to as the morning star, which is Venus that you know uh, very often would shine right before the sun comes up. You would see Venus. When I was down in the country I was just in, I was looking at night when we were walking around, and you could see one of the planets, I think it was Venus, that was, was rising up there. And I was commenting, oh, I'm already starting to think about this. And that's what the Messiah came to be known as. He was known as the rising sun that was going to come. And so when we come to the New Testament... Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. You remember, he's told John the Baptist is going to come, and then he's, he's struck mute where he can't speak because he questioned the angel. Not an angel that you want to mess with, apparently. You, know, you, you don't get to question him. He says, you're going to be mute for all these months. And when Zechariah can finally speak, he speaks forth this song of praise, and he says this. This is just a little bit of it in Luke chapter 1. He says, you, my child, speaking to John the Baptist, will be a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. What verse is that? Malachi chapter 4 that we just read Zechariah, learn from Zechariah here. He's praying Scripture. That's what he's doing. He's quoting Scripture. He's saying, the rising sun is coming. The Messiah is coming. And notice what he does. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Zechariah has just combined these two and said, they're about the same person. The Messiah is coming. He is the rising sun with healing in his wings. He's going to shine on those who are living in the shadow of death, in the, in the land of darkness. He's going to come. And so he's combining these texts, and he's saying, Jesus is the rising sun who's going to pierce the darkness to free us. One thing that's a little bit interesting, I just throw this in for a little tidbit. I, I did not know this until last week when I was reading it. The word for rising sun, uh, and if you go back and look in the King James Version, uh, some of the old versions, they actually translate, it's translated various ways. Some of them have day spring. Uh, some of them actually have orient, okay, the, the song that we sang, because it is the rising sun. The Greek word there is anatole, which, if you know, uh, they used to call Turkey Anatolia, or the Anatolian Peninsula, because if you were a Greek, it looked like the sun was rising out of Turkey, out of the east. That's the word that is used here for the rising sun. It's also used in Jeremiah 23, 6, Zechariah 3, 8, and Zechariah 6, 12, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek. They used it for the branch. Remember we talked about Jesus is the root of Jesse and the branch that is springing forth? It's this same word. It normally means that which is in the east, the rising sun, but the same 
two different titles of Messiah are used because he's a branch that is springing up. He is springing forth, and he is like the sun springing up over the edge. This is why Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 22, some of the last words he's recorded saying in Scripture, I've sent my angel to give a testimony to churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. I'm the one shooting forth from David, and I am the bright morning star. He is both the root and the branch of David. He is also the bright morning star. And in both of them, the key idea is that which is just beginning to bud, that which is just beginning to flourish and move forward. Now, why I'm stressing this idea of dawning light, I want us to think, in, in applying the word, we're going to do something very simple and we'll come to the Lord's table. I want you to ask yourself the question, where is their darkness in my life. Now, we're going to put up on the screen the six areas that I, I mentioned as I was going through. That there is spiritual darkness, and, and in that, if you're sitting here and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you know it or not, you exist in spiritual darkness. You, you are living in the land of the shadow of death. And please hear me. If you are in that spiritual darkness, I urge you Look to Christ. Nothing else is going to matter on the final day. I don't care how many houses you own, how many cars you've got, how famous you were, or anything else. On the last day, when you draw your last breath, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is, am I in Christ? Is his righteousness covering me? Has his blood paid for my sins? Did he die death for me, and was he raised up to raise me up? Are you living in spiritual darkness? If you are, look to Christ. Please come see me and we can chat about it. Secondly, emotional darkness. Third one was confusion or error. Fourth, captivity, a particular sin or habit that might just be enslaving you. Fear. Maybe you're a person, look, you can be a believer on, on, the, on most of these, with the exception of the spiritual, you can be a Christian, and you can live in fear. And it may be fear of death. There are people who just cannot deal with the fact that people they care for die or that they themselves are going to die. Now, I've got those up there. What I want you to do, we're going to do some spiritual work. Each of you Pray right now and ask the Holy Spirit, which one of these is the dark area in my life that you are wanting the light to break through? Okay, not somebody else's life, my life. And what we're going to be talking about and what we're going to come to the table is receiving the dawning light into my darkness. See, the problem is if I'm trapped in fear, what I think I want is bright, bright blazing noonday. But that's not how the light comes. When you're in the darkness, the light comes first as just a glimmer over the horizon. And, and then it grows and you, you see it start to spread out. It's a long time before bright noonday. And the fact is, if you've been dwelling in darkness and suddenly there's bright noonday, what is that like? 
Uh, when people have been trapped in darkness and you open the dungeon door, they don't even want to come out at first. It, it hurts too much. God in His mercy sends rising sun. Now, whatever the darkness that seems to threaten and extinguish life, freedom, and joy in your soul, God is telling us Jesus is the dawning light to restore hope and joy to you. But I want to remind you, the key here is, to, to use another biblical phrase, don't despise the day of small beginnings. God wants to send light. Don't ignore the light he sends. I'm going to uh, remind you just part of the Malcolm Geit poem in O Orients. Notice how, he, and he writes this one a little bit different, but he's got these lines. It says, so every trace of light begins a grace. In me, a beckoning. The smallest gleam is somehow a beginning and a calling. Sleeper awake, the darkness was a dream. For you will see the day spring at your wake at awakening. Beyond your long last line, the dawn is breaking. God wants to speak to you and me today and say, don't despise the small gleam of dawning light. Don't, that, that light that is beginning a grace in your life. It's the start of the restoration of life and freedom and joy if we will receive it. If we will receive it. And I love that, that line where he says, the darkness was a dream. See, this is the hard thing. When I'm sitting there in the darkness and I'm surrounded by fear or there's confusion or I'm struggling with a sin or a habit or I'm living in fear, whatever my darkness is, that seems like reality, does it not? That seems to be what's real. But see, the dawning light tells you that's not what's real. That is just a dream. And the light comes and says, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead. Christ is shining upon you. The, the darkness there is a dream. Reality is the light. So God is calling us to do that. Now what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table. And I want to encourage us. We're, we're going to do what we've been doing a little bit during uh, this series, which is we're going to have some responsive readings in a minute that we will stand together and do. But I want us in doing that to let the Lord minister to us, wherever that area of darkness is. The Lord is wanting to minister this morning, and He's wanting to give light. I want to let you know if you are a visitor here, you are welcome at this table if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are trusting that He and He alone is your salvation, you are welcome here with us. He has spread this table. If you're not a believer, you should let it pass because in taking this, we are proclaiming, I have faith, I have belief, I have trust that Jesus is God in the flesh and that He is my only hope of salvation. So we're going to stand together if we can. And I remind you in a couple moments when we pass out the elements, if you need gluten-free, if you just raise your hand, we'll bring that to you. And we'll do that. But we're going to have up here on the screen, there are going to be some things where I'm going to read a passage of Scripture about darkness. 
And you're going to respond with something about light, and I want you to hear and receive the gospel. In the beginning, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And said, let there be light, and there was. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. For the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Thanks be to God. We're going to confess our faith together in these words of Scripture. This is the message we have heard from Him. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. I say this to you, do not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord, who has cleansed us from all our sin. Amen. Amen. Isn't it good to know that we come by the blood of Christ? Amen. You may be seated. Friends, what I receive from the Lord... I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this table that is spread by grace. Lord, we thank you that though we were born in the darkness, though we were those who the God of this world had blinded, Lord, you have spoken, let there be light. And we have seen your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And we are your people, and we 
believe. Receive us at your table, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to distribute the elements, and as you get it, please hold on, and we will take them together in a couple moments. There will be a worship song playing that you can sing and meditate along with regarding God's light to us in Christ. Jesus, Emmanuel, the light of the world, has spread this feast for us. Come, receive nourishment, freedom, and joy for your soul. This bread is the sacrament of Jesus Christ, the true bread of heaven, who was broken for you. Take and eat, receiving forgiveness, freedom, and joy. Friends, this cup is the sacrament of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God slain for you. Take and drink, receiving full cleansing for your sins. Our glorious God, we thank you for the great salvation we celebrate this morning. When we dwelled in darkness, gloom, in the shadow of death, your light pierced the darkness to rescue and deliver us. Holy Spirit, I pray whatever areas you have revealed in our lives, where darkness remains, that you would pierce through, that the light of the gospel would break in and there would be freedom bringing us out breaking the chains, making us whole. Lord, send us forth now, filled with the light of your blessing. May your light shine through us, so that others may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the day spring of eternal light. And God's people say, amen. Let's stand together. Receive God's word of blessing. I'm, I'm paraphrasing out of Zechariah's prayer in Luke chapter 1. So I pray these promises of God, of his Messiah, would be yours today. May the day spring, God's rising sun, shine on you and dispel darkness. May he rescue you from the hand of all your enemies and enable you to serve him without fear all your days. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.